And I'll tell you what you're going to say when you do it, right before you do it. You're going to come to a surrender, which you will not surrender to, and you're going to say, and then you're going to drink. And so this is where step seven explains that this is a disease of perception. Perception is a surrender that you will not surrender to because you think you have the answer. And this is where I go back to step one. People come to this program under two conditions. One is submission, and one is surrender. If you come here under submission, that means that you have an idea that you know just as soon as you get things organized, you're going to fix it your way. It means that you come here with the illusion that, yes, I have a problem. It has caused some misdirected problems in my life. But just as soon as I get this organized and finish the second half of the first step, I'll get my life organized. Then I'll be back in control again. Surrender is coming here understanding that something kicked your ass and you ain't going to fight it no more. And how are you going to keep from fighting it? You're going to get a sponsor that says, don't fight this. Well, I want to fight it. I'm telling you, don't fight it. Well, what am I going to do? I'm going to tell you what you're going to do. Based on the fact that I have done this before, I'm going to tell you what to do. Because you don't know how to miss... You've got this obsession that controls your mind, and I'm going to tell you how to break the obsession. And that's step seven. Very simply, it says, We had lacked the perspective to see that character building and spiritual values had to come first and that material satisfactions were not the purpose of living. And who can tell us that but not a sponsor? So by the time you get to step seven, you have done a fourth and fifth, you have somebody in your life that's helping you go in the direction you want to go, that helps you in a relationship complement. Sue had a sponsor one time who uh, was very rigid and structured with her program, but hated alcoholics. Hated men. Hated men. Hated alcoholics. I mean, I had to be around her 15 minutes, the very first 15 minutes. I was around that lady. I knew she didn't like men. She never said nothing good about me. Anything, I said, well, I'd like to do this. She, oh, he's just an alcoholic. Yeah. Don't pay any attention to him, you know. Everything was, he's just an alcoholic. I, and I'd think, I may just be an alcoholic, but I'm a human being, woman. <laughs> See? And... Uh, Eventually, Sue had to change sponsors because that lady was not directing her in an area, in a direction that would put us together. Everything was, that's his problem. Yeah. It's not his problem. We're married. This is our problem. But I had to grow enough to realize that. Right. I had to grow enough to realize that what I was doing was hurting here more than it was helping me grow in this program. Then she got a sponsor. The, her next sponsor was somebody who had a relationship, a family, and uh, they were in the program maybe 10 years, and so everything, it was great. See, oh, hey, yeah, you know, Christmas, oh, family deals, family deals, except they weren't doing nothing in the program. <laughs> I said, that's great, except we're a family, except we're sick. <laughs> But what you got to realize about that, I used to beat myself up because I'd hear people say that they had the same sponsor for the time they came in the program until, you know, this day. And I'd think, what's wrong with me? Am I so sick? And I was. 
Well, yeah. I also know that God has to, you know, I've had eight sponsors, and Sue's had about six or seven sponsors, and I, that, you know, whatever. I ain't that Well, sick. she asked, <laughs> she asked Elsa Chamberlain to be her sponsor one time, and Elsa said, okay, uh, Beverly, call me tomorrow. <laughs> I guess that don't count. No, that don't count. She never was but my sponsor. One of the things that I've learned in that relationship is that we asked people to help us, and they helped us. And we made some changes so that we change. And if we're changing and we've learned from those experiences, then we can help the people that we sponsor based on the mistake. You don't have enough time in your lifetime to make the mistakes you're supposed to make in your lifetime, and mine too. See, as a sponsor, I am not so narrow-minded that I think you have all the answers. You know, my sponsor supports me in my program, and if she doesn't have the answers, she sends me to an old-timer that she believes in this program is very strong and says, go talk to her about it and then come back to me with the solution. There is no playing games in any area like that at all. My sponsor is uh, very supportive in every area of my life, and the find is in the search. The find is in the search. I had to search for a God, and I've had to search for a sponsor, and I've had the same sponsor the last 10 years. The thing that I had to recognize in step seven is vitally important is fear. Mm -hmm. And what I was really afraid of was a relationship. A relationship with you, a relationship, I mean, with the fellowship, a relationship with a sponsor. I'm really afraid of a relationship. <laughs> and why does my fear come? My fear comes because there's no God. So that's why the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous says that our primary purpose is to help us find a power greater than ourselves. So I come here, and my relationship, my very first relationship with anything was the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. My sponsor used to say, we will know when Keith has grown by the way he dresses and looks, because I'm sure Jim Priscilla remember when Keith always wore a cowboy hat and shades, and they said he was hiding because he was afraid. Yeah, and I remember he gradually stopped doing what I was saying. Stay stuff. away from me, I'll kick your ass. <laughs> <laughs> I just get you know, it's like saying, Beware a dog. If you see bear, beware a dog, and you go over and pet that dog, well, you, you know, you're kind of ignorant, you're crazy. <laughs> you know? And so, at least I was warning you. I came out of a place where the way I acted and dressed was okay because everybody's like that. It was a dog pen, see. Okay. And uh, we're not in that big of a hurry. Oh, we're not? No. Oh, okay. The chief activator of our defects has been self-centered fear, primarily fear that we would lose something we already possessed or we would fail to get something we demanded. Here I come here, and I've got to have a relationship, and I'm crazy, I'm drunk, loaded, all my perception is altered. I've got the mentality and the... the uh, emotions of a small child. I want my way. I throw my temper tantrums. I'm making love to my mother. You know, I'm trying to create passion with a woman that treats me like a mother, and I look and I put the responsibilities on her like a mother. You know, fix me, take care of me, bandage me up, bail me out. You know, how do we feel today? You know, the amazing thing was, is when I came to Alcoholics Anonymous, I was a bulldozer roaring through the life of trash, trying to push it all up in one pile and make it look like a monument to my accomplishment. <laughs> and uh, 
And it talks about this in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. The way I reacted to things with alcohol and narcotics in me is not the same way I react to things once I sober up. I was a violent drunk. And I came to Alcoholics Anonymous May 11, 1976, had my first sober day, and I have not hit anybody since. So where did my emotions go? If I ventilated that anger, if I ventilated all those things through physical violence and then I sober up and then I don't hit anybody anymore, where do I ventilate? All of a sudden I'm shoving it inside. I go totally al -anon. Totally out. Totally, my Sue said to me, you're not going to wuss out on me, are you? <laughs> I married you. I fell in love with you because you were a man, not because you were a wet noodle. <laughs> you sobered up and turned into a wet noodle. And I didn't know how to deal with those emotions. In the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, it talks about us as a, like we come in here, we're like a rubber band. And we gradually unwind. That's why we tell new people, don't get emotionally involved in the first period of time. Give it some time. Because what you're going to do is you're going to wake up one day and the rubber band is unwound a little bit and you're going to say, where in the hell did you come from? And then the next day you're going to say, oh, i got to have you. And the next day, who in the hell is that? And the next day, it's, that drives them nuts. And all of a sudden, you wake up here. I've been a guy that says, come here, bitch. And I'm a guy, help me, help me, help me. What do we do now? I'm this little boy full of fear, sober. The guy came up to me and said, how do you like making love to your mother? I said, what the hell are you talking about? You want me to choke you to death? I don't do that. <laughs> And then he said it to me. But it pointed out my character defects. And, and in step seven in the Al-Anon 12 and 12, it says, To rid ourselves of unwanted shortcomings, we learn to rely on assistance from a spiritual partner. So you Number one's God. Number two's my sponsor. And who is better to point out our character defects to us than an alcoholic? And I trust him. He's growing in the program. He's trying to get spiritual, but he can point out my character defects to me and teach me more about myself than anybody else. That's why when I say if you look at step five, there are all the guidelines to a relationship. And where do they come out in step six and seven? But the key to sharing with each other in any relationship, whether it's with my sponsor or at work or with Keith or with Simone, my daughter, it is not what I say, but it's how I say it that counts. I can say, screw you, I don't want to do that with you today. But you have a good attitude about it. But, or, <laughs> or I can say, you know, can we do that some other time because I'd planned so-and-so. Now, doesn't that sound better? I didn't know how to talk like that when I got here. I had to learn how to talk to another person. The bait on step seven is on page 76, and it says, The chief activator of our defects has been self-centered fear, primarily fear that we could lose something we already possessed or would fail to get something we demanded. Living upon a basis of unsatisfied demands, which is what we gave up in step two, which is what we gave up in step three, which is what we saw when we did inventory in step four, which is what we told another human being that we were going to give up in step five, which when we got to step six said, I don't know how to do it. I want to. I'm willing to do it, but I don't know how to do it. And step seven says, then we were in a state of continual disturbance and frustration. 
I don't want to live in a continual state of disturbance and frustration. Any relationship that has continual frustration and disturbance is not a relationship. And step seven tells me, look at this, dummy. You didn't come here to live in continual disturbance. You didn't come here to live in constant frustration. You didn't come here to this program to live a way of life that you always have to have your way. You came here so you could have freedom, so that you could be what God wanted you to be. The Elnon 12 and 12 says that this is the step that relieves the painful cancer from our soul. Right. And the key of this thing is on page 76 at the bottom, restored us to sanity. Isn't it amazing that they talk about being restored to sanity in step 7? And they talked about that in step 2. The thread runs through here. By the time you get to step 7, you're seeing the things in your, in your life, of this program life, that are insane. What are they? They're the things that continual disturbance and frustration. i got to have my way. I'm always right. And so what's the next step? Isn't it amazing? What's the next step? Eight. And what does eight have in it? A real human quality. Humility. So by the time you're cranking out all your ways and all your character defects are going, they come right along with step eight. And I'm wrong. Made a list of all persons we had harmed and became willing to make amends to them all. This is a step that is a willingness step. We need to do something specific, like take pencil in hand and write down the names of certain people, which means the people that we have hurt. It tells us exactly how to do that to become willing. When I sit there with a pencil and paper, I am willing to do this. One of the things in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous that strongly hits this thing, it says, reminding ourselves that we have decided to go to any lengths even follow sponsor direction, to find a spiritual experience which comes through sponsor, people, we, humility. We ask that we be given strength, and that's where the Spirit, give me the strength to follow the directions, do the right thing, and direct to do the right thing. How do I know what's the right thing? If I come here and look at 6 and 7, i got all this sick stuff, and I think my misdirected ideas are right, then how do I know what's the right thing? And I have to go back that eight step and look at the wrong things. I have to look at all the wrong things so I know the right thing. I didn't come here with any right things. I came here with all wrong things, and I've had to learn right things. I learned the right things by seeing the wrong thing. And in step eight, one of the things that was so important to me is that it talks in the eight step about it wasn't always the wrong things that I did to people that hurt them. But sometimes it was the kindness, the love, the sympathy, the tolerance that I gave people to get my way. And one more time, in the eighth step, i got to look at how I treated people with my motives. I might have been nice and loving and caring to them, but what was my motives for doing that? I was wrong. The strength. You know, when I talk about when I, I was a physically violent person, then I come here and I wuss out. And so the rubber band's unwinding. What I want to be is a gentle person. A gentle person can have a lot of strength. I have the strength. I don't need your approval to feel good about me. And that's what the eighth step teaches us. It says we go, we go try to right these wrongs, but it doesn't mean that I can make you accept it. The strength comes from the fact that I've tried to change. 
and I try to tell you that or show you that, and what I get is you don't have to give me your approval. God bless the worst things that we go through in all the rest of our sobriety is that needy thing of approval. And step eight breaks that. It tells us we developed this relationship with a sponsor, and now my sponsor is no longer my God. My sponsor is my director. My sponsor says, this is right, this is wrong, based on my experiences, or I'll show you. Then you get the strength. And what does it say? Step eight, it says, we must not shrink at anything. God, that's strong. Provided I'm going in the right direction. If I take that to say, we must not shrink at anything, and so I'm going to drive my Harley right up your ass. That's not right. This says we embrace the Al-Anon program. We could take comfort from all we are learning about acceptance, detachment, understanding, and how to love without demanding conformity from others. This is a step that we tell someone I was wrong and we expect nothing. When we write those names down, we're doing it for ourselves. We're expecting nothing back. Step 8 says... In, in, <laughs> eight and nine are concerned with the personal relations. Huh. First, we take a look backward and try to discover where we have been at fault. I was talking to a guy, there's a guy here today that's been in and out of Alcoholics Anonymous, and he's always followed some sick relationship out and got drunk. Now he's in a relationship where she went off down the road and don't care where he goes. And he's up here today, and he said, I'm trying to do the right thing. The eighth step, one of the most important things for me to put a name on that eighth step was mine. I have to make amends to myself through this program by not doing the things to myself that caused me harm before I got here. So I owe amends to myself, and my name goes to the top of the list. The second one on my list was God. I had offended God for many years by doing the things I did. And so God's name went on that list. It says in here, at the time we complete step eight, we should have developed the following. Very important in any relationship. Good judgment. Careful sense of timing. <laughs> courage. And prudence. These are the qualities we shall need when we take step nine. Good judgment. A careful sense of timing courage and prudence in any relationship how can i have a relationship with her if i can't you know when my wife comes home from work and comes down that freeway and runs in that house she needs several things before she needs me she usually needs to pee oh, she needs to change clothes and she needs some quiet time and then i can talk to her that's a very very important sense of timing because i used to hit her at the front door i need 50 bucks i got the hell you know, this is going on and all kinds of, and she just come in, she needs to pee. <laughs> See? Good judgment, very important thing. Sponsors show you those things. See? Courage, I have to have the courage. And we make this, step eight and nine is an ongoing thing. Step nine is a thing. One very important thing that I had to recognize in my relationship was that in, my, in step nine when I started making these amends, I had no consideration for my family. <laughs> I'm an alcoholic, I hit the dock with that thing, made my eight-step list, and I'm going to take care of crap here, and I'm going to clean this mess up. And it seemed to me like what she's saying is, I don't care if you take care of all that, but by God, you're sober, and we're not going to suffer from it. Now, that's what I thought I heard. And I thought I heard that because I had a lot of guilt. That is not what they were saying over there. 
what they were saying always there, babe, do what you got to do. Just stay sober. But what I did with that ninth step was I, I run out here and everything I did trying to make my ninth step did not have any consideration for my family. I'd run in there and throw 50 bucks on her and then run out there and pay 100 to some creditor. I'd run in there and throw 100 bucks on her and run out and pay 25. I started playing all kinds of games. And what the financial amends, I had huge financial amends, and what I recognized was, I'm making these financial amends, you got a new diamond ring. Don't bitch. But what I'm doing is I'm doing things in sobriety, working my ninth step that is constantly <coughs> keeping that same thing that I had when I was drinking, that is that feast and famine. I never stopped doing the things that I was doing in that area of money and those kind of manipulating things, and my family's looking at me sober, trying to work step nine, and every deal I run, I put everything I had on the line. They never knew if we were going to lose the house, going to lose everything. Sober, I'm doing that. Under the guise, I'm making my, my ninth step. And I come home, and I try to have a relationship with my family, and they have the same fear. They're not worried about me drinking anymore. But they don't know when we're going to get wasted out of the house, out of the car. They don't know. I mean, I'm out here taking care of these amends without any consideration for my family. One of the most important considerations in any relationship is consistency and, and the... Uh, Perseverance. Well, to, to, to have comfort. When I drank, you, I mean, it might take all the house payment money or rent money to get me out of jail. And here I am sober trying to do the ninth step, and I have no rule of consideration with the people that are my family. See? My actions are the same. And when I start looking at these people, and they're looking at me with that look of contempt and fear, and I'm making my financial amends, I'm supposed to feel good about that. And yet my actions are the same. They don't know, they, maybe, I don't know, is he going to drink? Are we going to lose the house? Are we going to lose the car? Is the sheriff coming? I'm doing the same same actions. I didn't change. And and uh, <laughs> the the point of step nine is to remember that our real purpose is to fit ourselves of maximum service to God and the people about us. The people who are the people about us? The people we're in a relationship with. I took this thing. Said God wants me to hurry up and pay this two hundred fifty thousand dollars back so I can feel good. And. They didn't feel good. The people I was living with didn't feel good about my amend. They didn't feel good about what I was doing. On my amends, the key to this whole thing was direct. God, I hated to go directly to those people and make those amends. But I knew I had to because it induced more humility. And, uh, and it freed me. This is the freedom step. And I had to do it. Uh, my, and my sponsor said it was so important because it says make direct amends to such people wherever possible except when to do so would injure them or others. She said what you got to keep in mind, Sue, is that you might be an other. If you're going to go back and stir up old stuff up, you might get hurt again. And if those people have lived this long without you, like I gave a child up for adoption when I was a teenager, I wasn't going to go look that kid and her folks up and walk up and knock, knock, knock. I'm your birth mother. I want to owe you amends and stir up their stuff. Do I write to the guy that I got pregnant by and say, Hey, by the way, tell your current wife you don't have to worry about me coming back in your life again because I found a new way of life and, and he's forgotten about me years ago. 
So, if it's ever necessary, God's going to put them right here, right in front of me. Then I will know that I'm supposed to make those direct amends. There's a very important word in step nine, and even you can go in clubhouse and they got it written wrong on the damn steps. Made direct amends to such people wherever, and most people think whenever. And that was one of my fallacies. I thought whenever, so I had to run out with a bag of dimes, hit the phone, call them all up, and say, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. And I wonder why I didn't get any self-worth from that. What I had to do is change and say, I feel good about my chain. I want you to understand you don't have to judge the other people in your life by the way I treated you because there's a lot of good people. But I want you to understand, too, I'm trying to change. And therefore, you can expect me to try to do what I'm saying I'm doing because I have a program of living that I'm going to change, and therefore I won't treat you the way I used to either. <laughs> it's important uh, when, when you, the bait again comes in 9 and 10 is there's promises here. Everything through here, there's a reason to do it. When you do it for a reason, then you get something from it. We're selfish, self-centered people. The character defect can become an asset. If I'm going to work this hard to do all this stuff, I want something from it. See? And these promises there. I, I was listening to a guy. My sponsor told this guy one time he's sober 30 years. He said, you're the only guy I know that's sober 30 years that all the promises have not come true. He said, what do you mean? He said, that one promise, self-seeking, will never leave you or will leave you, whatever it is. And there he said, you still want everything your way after 30 years of sobriety. The guy ain't married. He hasn't had a relationship with anybody. He uses various things, tools of AA to live off of financially, all kinds of things. And he's sober 30 years. And, uh, that isn't what I want. And I think one of the mistakes that people do is that they come here and work the first nine steps, and they put them on the shelf, and they try to work 10, 11, and 12. But by the same token, if you have changed as a result of working the first nine steps, you will never again have to work the first nine steps like you did when you worked the first nine steps the first time. So it's, it's a paradox there. I will, if I have changed as a result of the sobriety and what I've done in the first nine steps, I will never have to work the first nine steps under the, the conditions that I worked the first nine steps the first time. So the idea, the philosophy that there's you know three steps, 10, 11, and 12, which are maintenance steps, which I'm going to use, if I'm going to use 10, 11, and 12 to develop my relationship, which is promptly admit where I'm wrong, you know, pray and meditate for the right thing to do in my relationship and then work with others and go down this path, then I have to work my amends daily to do ten. I have to see my patterns of four and five in order to be able to review ten. I have to have my fourth step done every time I share with another alcoholic because that's my greatest asset, my past, my greatest asset. That's what I share. That's what gets us identity in 12. I have to recognize that if you don't want what I got, I can't make you do it. My sponsor is telling a story about it. I can tell you people in here that there's a big hole right out here in the parking lot, and half of you are going to go fall in that hole. If you can't find the hole, you're going to come back here and ask me, where is that hole? i got to fall in that hole. Because I don't get it any other way. And then there's certain people I can say, look, there's a hole out there. Go out this door. And they'll go out that door. Some people can learn. And I believe by the time that I've done step nine, I don't have to run out and fall in that damn hole again. By the time if I've done step nine 
in the best of my ability, and you tell me there's a hole out there, my sponsor says there's a hole out there, I'll go out this door. I have faith in him to believe that I'll go out that door, and I don't have to fall in that hole. The thing about tips, step 10 that's so important for me and why I have to keep doing it all the time is because it's the basics for me of where I keep examining my motives, I keep examining my character defects on a daily basis of where they came up from, and I keep looking at where I'm at today compared to where I used to be or where I came from. And it's the thing that keeps me going straight down this path. It's the thing, it's the one step that's in my life every day that induces humility, that keeps me going on the straight path of recovery to see where I'm swaying, what I'm going, what direction I'm going, what I'm thinking, how I'm feeling. Am I doing good? Am I not doing good? See, one of the things, if you look at step 10, it says continue to take personal inventory, and when we were wrong, promptly admit it. If I continue to take personal inventory, what I'm clear, what am I, what do I want to do that for? Why would I want to take personal inventory? If I'm an obsessive, compulsive behavior person, when I took my first drink, I am an obsessive, compulsive behavior person today. I am more so. It's a progressive disease. The reason I want to continue to take inventory is so that I don't get locked into an obsession today. Because, God, you know, I get locked in an obsession. When I came here, it was like looking through a straw. So when I got in, in, in locked in an obsession, it was like intense. I've stayed here 19 and a half years. I got peripheral vision. When I get in locked into an obsession at 19 and a half years, I don't want to control you. I want to control you. <laughs> See? So my perception has changed, but my disease hasn't. I still have the disease. I get more frustrated over not being able to control multitudes today than I do over one. See? So I need this direction so that I don't try to control. Because I can get locked into these deals. and never, I get so obsessed with good ideas that kill me. <laughs> and so I need the sponsor direction. I need to look at this today. And when I look at this and I'm going... The, the reason that you work step 10, or I work step 10, is so it keeps me open. I sponsor people that are days, months, years, sobriety. I try to keep sponsorship on an even keel in the sense of different lengths of sobriety. So that when I'm working the steps with somebody, I'm working with a newcomer and he's, he's just trying to stay physically sober. I'm working on a guy with 31 days who wants to stay physically sober and get something to make love to. I'm working on a, on a guy that's a year and a half sober who wants to get sober, stay sober today, make love to something, and then get something materially. And then I sponsor guys who are six or seven years who want to stay sober, get something, make love to something, make something in themselves, become brain surgeons without going to school. They want to lock in on this, and when am I going to get mine? And and then I, I sponsor people that say want to stay sober today and they want to get laid today and they want to get a job today and they want to get a big paycheck today and they want to sponsor 14 people today. So they've gone from the guy that just wanted to stay sober today to a guy that's trying to, you know, it's like the guy that puts the plates on the dowels. You ever seen the old guy and they put them plates and spin the plate? And so they're shaking this down, they're shaking this down. People with 10 years of sobriety got about 10 dowel plates whipping around out there. 
<laughs> and you know, at 19 and a half years, I can see with them suckers, and he's in that room. Hey, sponsor, come in here. I need some help shaking the Dow. And you know what, 19 years? At 10 years, I'd go help a guy. <laughs> You're right. At 19 years, I say, let them all fall. <laughs> no, no, I can't do that. They'll break. Let them break. If you don't let them break, they'll break you. Ask me how I know. <laughs> because this step keeps us... It, it, by the time we get this step, we have the conscious contact with a higher power, a sponsor, and other human beings that we know if we do that again, there are going to be consequences. And this is the step that lets us know on a daily basis, okay, if I'm going to do that, what are the consequences? Am I being stubbornly opinionated and it's my way again? This step keeps me current in my recovery of going on the straight, narrow path toward a higher power. Remember, in 4, we said we were going to do a fearless inventory. Fearless. Well, that's one of the most ridiculous things to ask a newcomer to do. <laughs> How can you ask a newcomer to do a moral inventory? They don't even know what morals are especially in Alki. We drank so we had no moral. And you Alanons took the crap from us and you learned to, to not have morals because we said you don't need them. All you need is me. See? You don't need morals. I'm your moral. I'll tell you how you feel. Let me show you. That's what I always love. Jeff Lizey went over there and got his teeth pulled last night, got four impacted wisdom teeth pulled, and he showed up over there, and I said, now, do you want me to show you, explain to you the difference between mental pain and physical pain? And I, I like that, if, if I hit you upside the head, you'll have some excruciating physical pain. There's a difference between physical pain and mental pain. And so when I do this inventory, step 10, what is one of my guidelines that it taught me in four? If I do a as it said, continue to take personal inventory. If there is fear in my 10-step inventory, there's something wrong. <laughs> there's something wrong. And when I looked at my relationship, when I looked at my relationship with Sue and I did my 10th my step, and there's fear in it, there's something wrong. There's something wrong. Okay. Step 11 says, Sought through prayer and meditation to improve our conscious contact with God as we understood Him, praying only for the knowledge of His will for us and the power to carry it out. This step for me, the key to this whole step for me, is praying for God's knowledge of His will for me and the power to carry it out. There is so much power in these rooms. Chuck Chamberlain used to say, if we could see the power of God in these rooms, it would be so bright it would blind you. And the reason we come to these places and do these things because it plugs us into the power. And then we take it home and we apply it to our personal lives. God, help me. And it becomes so simple. It's a... It's a perspective that we get. It, we, by the time we get here, we have a new perspective on things. We're trying to get insight into our lives. We're trying to show people how to do that with their lives. You know, and we learn that we don't have to figure things out anymore. I still do that from time to time, and then I think, how stupid. Why didn't I realize that? This step puts discipline in my life. 
And when I'm on that course of the dis- discipline, I know that I need to make myself a channel for this higher power to work through. And that's why I love the story about the little boy praying and, or getting scared in his room and getting in bed with his dad. And he says, I'm afraid. And his daddy said, you didn't have to be afraid in there. He said, but I was alone. And his daddy says, no, you weren't. God was in there with you. And he said, yeah, I know, Daddy, but right now I need something with skin on it. Now, this is where I've learned all of this stuff from my God working through people. And they've helped me to the point that when I get to this step, it's me and God. When you get through step 10 and work that step 10, and you know, and it, it implies you do step 10 at night. You can do it anytime you want to. Anytime you, you need to. You better do step 10 in the morning with your meditation or you don't start your day out right. If you start your day out right, jumping up, throwing your clothes on, hitting the freeway, running down there, you started your day out with pucky. And you're trying to control something and you're going to run it through the rest of the day. I get up 30 minutes extra every day to do my meditation. I put that in my schedule. It's just like me clocking in. I got a boss that I got to clock in at my work. I clock in, clock out. I had to put that discipline in my life. I've had to have that relationship with God. I have to clock in. If I don't clock in, I'm running on self-will. And it tells us in the book, all our answers are in the book about this. It isn't just our opinion. Our answers are in the book. The amazing thing with step 11, some of our answers to step 11 is in chapter 11 of Vision for You. By the time you do step 11, there's supposed to be an open channel. There's supposed to be an open channel. And to eliminate the choke of the channel, the choke is anger, fear, frustration, and, and uh, you know, misunderstanding. The amazing thing, if you go to Vision for You on page 151, a lot of times you don't read that. We read the end of that. It says, Sniveling Denise's of the mad realm, the chilling vapor that the loneliness settled down. That's what I, every time I meditate, I ask myself about. Do I have that? How do I know if I have that in an amazing momentarily we did then we could come then would come oblivion the awful awakening the faces the hideous four horsemen terror bewilderment frustration and despair what i ask myself about it every time i meditate i look at this what do i have these things in my relationship if i have terror in my relationship something's going to happen here bewilderment because i can't control her frustration because she won't listen to me (laughs) despair it's the consciousness of your contact with your higher power that's the key to this whole thing. You have to, you can go, you can slam dunk your meditation in, in the morning. And if you slam dunk your meditation, you're going to have a slam dunk meditation. But if you make that conscious effort and you think, I mean, I was working with a newcomer here a while back, and I said, did you read your books this morning? Because she's going, pow, 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 this is wrong, this is wrong, they're doing this, and they're doing that. And I go, wait a minute. Did you read your morning meditation? Did you read your one day at a time? Did you read your courage to change? And she said, yeah, I did. And I said, what does it say? She goes, I don't know. How long ago did you read it? Five minutes ago. And I understand that mind. Because mine's like that a lot, and it was definitely that way when I was new. And I and I said, let me get my books. And we did them together, and as we went through this sentence, we said, what does that word mean? What does that sentence mean? And that's the way I do my morning meditation. I sit there and, okay, God, what does this mean for me? Now, and then the answers will come, and it says that in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. Because I have my focus 
in to the words that's talking about what me and God need to do for the day. If you do your morning meditation and you do basically uh, what it says suggests in the big book, if you go to page 164, and I use this sometimes, but it's my barometer, abandon yourself to God. you got to get up to do that. you got to get in the right position to do that. You can make all kinds of excuses, but come on. It's a simple thing, you know. So you abandon yourself to God as you understand God. Admit your faults to him and to your fellows. So you say in the morning, your faults. You know them. You wake up and your mouth tastes like you've been sucking on a bullet all night long. You know it ain't right. You got that metallic taste. You got that burnt acid. If you got that wake up and you just got that clenched fifth. No, it's not. So it says, when you abandon yourself to God, step one, two, and three. Admit your faults to him and your fellows, four, five, six, and seven. Clear away the wreckage of your past. Eight and nine. Give freely of what you find with us. Ten, eleven, and twelve. We shall be with you in the fellowship of the Spirit. Fellowship. There's your fellowship. After you have done this, you have the fellowship. This is the book. This is the first AA. This is the tool. And then the fellowship. It says right here, we shall be with you in the fellowship. After you work the twelve steps. It doesn't say jump up and get out in the fellowship and rip and tear. It says work 1, 2, and 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, and 12, and we shall be with you in the fellowship of the Spirit. you got to be in the Spirit or you're not in the fellowship. This is a fellowship. Sue and I are a fellowship. Where two or more are gathered, God's within, if we're in the Spirit. And you will surely meet some of us you trudge the road to happy destiny. Trudging does not mean unhappiness. I'm trudging. Well, tell your faith that you're happy while you're trudging. See? And I can't trudge the road of happy destiny with my relationship with Sue if my trudging makes her trudge. I may be trudging, but she does not have to trudge with me for me to trudge. We came here trudging together. And if I trudge, she trudge. If she trudge, I trudge. So we both trudge. And that is not a road of happy destiny. In the Alan 12 and 12, it talks on meditation. You can hear in your meetings people go, well, meditation's this, meditation's that, and you hear it all over the program. What is meditation? And it simply says it means concentrated thought on a chosen subject. Then mean that you have to sit there and I used to think, empty my mind, empty my mind. My mind was never empty. No. And so in reading my meditation books, you know, I concentrate on the positive things in my life. Now, in my meditation, I've even thought about, you know, what can I do for Keith today? What can I do for Simone today? What can I do for others? Because I'm sitting there and I'm in a positive frame of mind. One of the things that we've realized, because we're going to do the traditions when we're through here after we eat, these steps are for the individual. If I work on me and, and we and me, and we, and sponsor, and direction, and we, I'm not working on this relationship. I'm working on my relationship with my God. Understand? The steps are for the individual. When you do the traditions, you're still going to hear Keith and Sue. We've been together 35 years. We work the steps, and the traditions will tell you how we worked as a group. Then we put them together and worked as a group, as a team. 
I you relation. Have to put them all together: the book, the steps, and the tradition to have a good relationship. Our relationship is no different than the fellowship for me. It is a byproduct, as a result of working these steps. And the, the true, the true bondage of that is in the twelve step. When I got to the twelve step, and I wanted to know what's evidence of me working these steps. I got four alcoholics over here, and they all think that everything I say is true, and she don't. Nope. My spiritual awakening of the 12th step is very simply, one alcoholic talking to another alcoholic is the magic of Alcoholics Anonymous. My spiritual awakening is that one alcoholic talking to another alcoholic is not necessarily the answer to my communication with Sue. First of all, she's a woman, so she has a bullshit filter. <laughs> Second of all, she is an Al-Anon. Now that's our story. So I can be over here talking to Jim. We can talk about all this. I can, like we were talking out there. Well, I can tell you what you when you're going to drink, and I can tell you what you're going to say before you drink. Let me tell you something. I will never, ever be able to hear that from Sue like I heard it from Jim. When Jim said that out there before we started this meeting, I knew exactly what he's talking to. I believed him. I just said it and did it to a guy I sponsored with 10 years just a few days ago. I just told a guy I sponsored today, you want to do that? Go do it. And Sue said, oh, I bullshit. So my spiritual awakening is that I understand I'm an alcoholic and I help an alcoholic. Do not confuse that with her. Even if she was an alcoholic, <laughs> her ain't going to hear that. In the 12th step for me, the first part of the spiritual awakening was that I remember looking in the mirror one day and I wasn't who I used to be. I no longer had that self-obsessedness. I was not self-centered. I cared about others. Uh, and the second part of it is carrying the message. And I remember when I realized that, it's like, oh, my God, my God gave me a purpose. I am a trusted servant to my higher power. My God gave me this disease so I could ultimately find my God. Therefore, the disease of alcoholism was ultimately a gift in my life because my God knew I wouldn't find him without it. And he gave me this gift, and therefore I get to carry the message. I have a purpose. I am of service to my God now. And it was so overwhelming to me when I found out that is my primary purpose, that is my ultimate purpose, that is what drives me in my life. And the third part is practice these principles in all of our affairs. That's the third part. Taking this program everywhere else. I have to conduct myself in the manner that I've been taught to do in this program and work on my character defects and be of service to my God no matter where I'm at. And I can take this stuff with me, but I think the responsibility that we have in today's day and time in this program of Al-Anon or AA if you choose is that taking this program everywhere might be taking it to your meeting. 
What a concept. This program's going to hell in a handbasket. If you got the time, you got the knowledge, you got the responsibility. And that's where we're letting the old timers down that gave this thing to us. Is we are not taking this program into our meeting places. And I feel so strong about that now. That's where I'm at in my program right now is that I don't want this thing to go to hell in a handbasket. And by God, not my home meeting. I had a gal in my meeting a couple weeks ago that she was going to go ask a newcomer to be her sponsor. Nine years, and she's going to go ask a newcomer to be her sponsor. And I said, look, I love you. I support you. But you ain't going to screw up a newcomer in my home group. And if you want to do that, you can do that. I'm not going to tell you you can't do that, but you're not going to do it in my home group because that's not what our literature tells us and that's not what the old-timers told us. And I called my sponsor and told her exactly what I said, expecting me to get my ass chewed out for telling somebody to leave my group. And my sponsor said, good for you. Don't water this thing down, Sue. And I felt so good. There's a prayer before step 12. As we go through the day, we pause when agitated and doubtful. (laughs) And ask for the right thought or action. (laughs) We constantly remind ourselves as we no longer running the show, humbly saying to ourselves many times each day, Thy will be done. We alcoholics are un discipline so we let god discipline us in the simple way we have just outlined but this is not all there is action and more action faith without works is dead and the next chapter is devoted entirely to the 12th step and so it's an amazing thing working with others before you get to the end of this thing you have to the wives isn't that a funny thing to the wives, that must have something to do with relationships. You know, I mean, they wrote to the wives because that's what they were. And you realize when they wrote the chapter to the wives, there was no auxiliary. There was no women in AA. So they wrote the chapter to the wives for the auxiliary, really, which was Al-Anon's and AA women. So we're talking about relationships, whether it's man-man, woman-woman, man-woman, animal-woman, animal-man, whatever in the hell you're talking about. To the Wives is a chapter for all that. Uh, The last sentence in the 12 and 12 in Al-Anon says, Carrying the message is an obligation I have. Let me remind myself what, what I do speaks louder than what I say. There's a chapter to the family afterwards, and one more time, this word comes out. I can't stress it enough when it comes to relationships with you, your God, you with your fellow man, you with your mate. The family afterwards, on page 123, the old buildings will eventually be replaced by finer ones, and new structures will take many years. But the wise family will admire him for what he is trying to be what we are trying to be. What are we trying to be? We're trying to be ourselves. We're trying to be free of those obsessions. We're trying to be an individual. We're trying to be able to have the strength to make a decision. We're trying to ask for help. We're trying to carry that message. That's the message I'm trying to take. 
I don't come here and try to carry the message that I'm obsessed with some obsession and follow me so you can see what not to do. I come here and say I am no longer powerless over these obsessions because I no longer have them. And these other chapters that we come through here are, are where we learn to take these things and put them to the employer. Isn't it amazing? After it comes down, it talks about the 12th step. It talks chapter of the wife, chapter of the family, chapter of the employer. And then what? A vision for you. That's a spiritual awakening. For me to come here and, and work these steps, then I have a wife. I have a relationship. I have an employer. I have a relationship. I've had to go through all the same surrenders with that employer, employee situation that I have with her, with them, with you. And then what do I carry? One of the worst times of my life is going down a road with a carload of newcomers and I don't have a job and I'm telling six guys in my car, you've got to get a job. <laughs> oh, damn, that doesn't taste good, you know. And so what I recognize is that I have to do these things so that I can share. And by the time we get here, we should know the difference between doing God's work and God's will. I also understand by working these 12 steps, my spiritual awakening is, is that if I'm going to share this with you, you've got to want it. If you don't want what i got, then I can't help you. My sponsor says, I talk, you listen. When you quit listening, I quit talking. And that's as simple as that. I can help some people. Chuck Chamberlain told me many years ago, there's some people you can help and some people I can help, and they may not be the same. As long as you're going for help, we'll be okay. And the most important spiritual thing about the individual 12 steps applying to my life and her applying in her life is that there has never been any conflict about what I have to do to stay sober. And there has never been any conflict and me about what she has to do to stay sane. And so, therefore, we've never had any conflict. They told us in the very beginning the spiritual awakening is looking down, standing in the middle of a railroad track. You know, even though you know it's impossible for that to be a railroad track and be one rail, it will always have to be two rails. If you're doing these steps in your life and you're doing what God wants you to do so that you can be what God wants you to be. You stand in the middle of the railroad track and you look down the railroad track, at some point down there the illusion is it becomes one. And after 35 years, we have become one, but we are always two. And the thing that keeps us aware of the fact that we are not one attached to the hip, that we are not dependent upon each other for our happiness, is the traditions. And we'll share on them later. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very, very much. What a, an exciting workshop. Boy, there was an awful lot to digest, wasn't there? Anyhow, uh, this session is over, and now we'll have the work for this potluck. You got it. Oh, well, I didn't want it. Um, Keith and Sue, we would like to present these to you for coming up and thank oh, you thank very you. much. Thank you. We love you very, very much. We love you. You're a sweetheart. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Great spaghetti. Thank you. Keep coming back. It works. Aren't they pretty? Made with love.
Okay, now we're going to start our second half, and, and we're not going to go into the reading of, of anything else except for the uh, 12... Oh, you want to do the raffle? <laughs> and now we can continue. Um, I lost my book. the last I want to come up and read the traditions please sure you're right in front and I called you before <laughs> okay uh, unity through the traditions I'm Celeste the 12 traditions the traditions that follow bind us together in unity they guide the groups in their relations with other groups with AA in the outside world. They recommend group attitudes toward leadership, membership, money, property, public relations, and anonymity. The traditions evolve from the experience of AA groups in trying to solve their problems of living and working together. Al-Anon adopted these group guidelines and over the years has found them sound and wise. Although they are only suggestions, Al-Anon's unity and perhaps even its survival are dependent on adherence to these principles. One, our common welfare should come first. Personal progress for the greatest number depends upon unity. Two, for our group purpose there is but one authority, a loving God as he may express himself in our group conscience. Our leaders are but trusted servants. They do not govern. Three, the relatives of alcoholics when gathered together for mutual aid may call themselves an Al-Anon family group, provided that as a group they have no other affiliation. The only requirement for membership is that there be a problem of alcoholism in a relative or friend. Four, each group should be autonomous except in matters affecting another group or Al-Anon or AA as a whole. Five, each Al-Anon family group has but one purpose, to help families of alcoholics. We do this by practicing the 12 steps of AA ourselves, by encouraging and understanding our alcoholic relatives, and by welcoming and giving comfort to families of alcoholics. Six, our Al-Anon family groups ought never endorse, finance, or lend our name to any outside enterprise, lest problems of money, property, and prestige divert us from our primary spiritual aim. Although a separate entity, we should always cooperate with Alcoholics Anonymous. Seven, every group ought to be fully self-supporting, declining outside contributions. Eight, Al-Anon 12-step work should remain forever non-professional, but our service centers may employ special workers. Nine, our groups as such ought never be organized, but we may create service boards or committees directly responsible to those they serve. Ten, the Al-Anon family groups have no opinion on outside issues, hence our name ought never be drawn into public controversy. Eleven, our public relations policy is based on attraction rather than promotion. We need always maintain personal anonymity at the level of press, radio, TV, and films. We need guard with special care of the anonymity of all AA members. Twelve, anonymity is a spiritual foundation of all our traditions, ever reminding us to place principles above personalities. Thank you. And now, so that we can continue without any further interruptions from me, let's put Sue and Keith back on for session two on the traditions. Hello, everybody. I'm an alcoholic. My name's Keith. Hi, Keith. I'm Sue. I'm a grateful member of the Elnon family group. Hi, Sue. 
what we'd like to share on is the uh, 12 traditions and how we uh, have used them uh, in our life and in our uh, uh, relationship of a marriage of 33 years and together 35 years and in our family and uh, the whole thing. As I mentioned, the 12 steps are for the individual and the uh, uh, 12 traditions are for the group and our family's a group. Uh, we're a group here today. Uh, and uh, our group conscience is a very important thing that brings God into it. <clears throat> and uh, one of the things that uh, I, re I really like about uh, the traditions and the steps and the, and the difference between the two, I mean, our group is a very important thing. Our home group, my home group's a dog on a roof group. The meeting's over 37 years old. It has a legacy. It's a men's stag meeting. I needed a men's stag meeting because I, I uh, didn't need to be uh, distracted by the woman or women, because uh, when I got here I was really sick and, and I needed to hear from men. I've never been uh, intimidated by men. I mean, I hear women say when they come to AA that uh, they didn't like women and they had to develop a relationship with women. Uh, I've always liked being with the guys. I'm a guy type of guy. I wasn't, uh, you know, I didn't hang around with women when I drank, really. I mean, when I got to AA, I couldn't have got a hooker with a $1,000 bill in each hand, so I wasn't... Uh, uh, doing anything, but uh, <clears throat> that's just my story. My home group is still at Men's Stag, always has been, uh, and uh, and it really helps me. The reason I like the Men's man Stag is because I can have problems with my relationship, and then I go to my Men's Stag, and we talk about men's ideas of things, and then I come back out of there, and then what that teaches me is that I understand that men think a certain way, and women think, think a certain other way. There's a lot of similarities but there's certain things that I need to hear the man side of it, and then I can listen to the woman side of it. And women, uh, you know, have a different, uh, we're made up differently, we think differently, what have you, even though times have changed and different values have changed, by, there's, a, there's a separation there. And, and I also learned uh, by going to men's meetings, and my, my home group being a men's meeting is a, uh, Matter of fact, Elsa Chamberlain explained this to me, and I don't think she was a student of psychology. I think she was a very wise lady. She was uh, in her 80s and been in a program 30 some years, and she said that uh, every person has a makeup, and uh, in that makeup, as a person as a whole, 100%, why some of us, like some men, are more feminine than they are masculine. So in each person, like you might be, uh, like I'm. Uh, 85% man and 15% broken up into feminine and gentle and that kind of thing. But I'm a macho type of guy and uh, a Virgo and all that kind of stuff. And uh, and Sue's a Virgo, and she's about 85% man and about 15% woman. Uh, and that's why when we had arguments, we didn't have verbal arguments. We had physical violence. We fought like two men. And, and what I, by going to men's meetings, why well, I recognize that some men are 85% woman and 15% man. And, and some women are 85% man, and they play different games. There's different games here. And so to have the unity to get along, you have to understand after you work the steps with the individual, why then you have to, you know, how are you dealing with your group? What are you dealing with? You know? And uh, I had to understand some of those things. And the traditions put it in a proper... Even at that young, she was not stupid. 
And once we start trying to live by the prescription of this book, then there was always a God consciousness. And, and it doesn't make any difference in our family. There was three, which kind of makes it better because you have the, the difference in a two. Three, you can at least plot that curve. Uh, two, why it could be a straight line. But I still believe, because the book says we're two or more together, why God's in the presence. You have some unity. You have something. That, and so you do that. The thing that uh, is right at the end of the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous in uh, spiritual experience, uh, the traditions are... You know, it's talking about God consciousness. It's talking about unity. It's talking about the group. It says, Most emphatically, we wish to say that the alcoholic capable of honesty facing his problems in the light of our experience can recover, provided he does not close his mind to all spiritual concepts. And the one good thing about the group conscience or unity is there's not everybody sitting in this room has a closed mind. There's at least one or two open minds in here. And that's the channel which we allow God to go. And it says, He can only be defeated by an attitude of intolerance or belligerent denial. Willingness, honesty, and open-mindedness is essential to recovery. So that's basically what we put these traditions in our life. There's other one other thing that's vitally important uh, in the traditions, is in the big book of Alcoholics and Non-Traditions. We alcoholics see that we must work together and hang together. And it talks about the fact that... Uh, Anyway, something about uh, conformity and money. Money and conformity. Money and conformity. And so what I had to recognize is we had a big problem with money. That was one of our biggest <laughs> hang-up as a family. Anybody that lives with an alcoholic or a gambler or a doper or any of that kind of stuff has a problem with money. And so that was part of our uh, that's uh, tradition three, money and conformity. So what I had to recognize is I had a problem with money and I had a problem, a problem with trying to make them conform to my ideas. <coughs> So the 12 traditions is what we brought into the home and where we put uh, the tradition where it said group, we put family. And we've used that. We use it today as our guideline for everything that we do. It's like there were so many rules before we got to this program, but nobody knew what they were. You know, so we were all playing a different game. You know, and it's like the rules changed. There were any given moment the rules changed, whether they were with Keith. And the traditions are not rules. They're only guidelines uh, to bring unity into a group. And I was told in the very, very beginning, you can use these traditions, and everywhere it says group, break it up, and it says grow up. G-R-O-U-P. And that's the way you apply it to your family. And what the traditions have done for us is, is they form obedience to the unenforceable in our home. We always go with the traditions when there's a conflict of interest. And the first uh, tradition says our common welfare should come first. Personal progress for the greatest number depends upon unity. When I first got here, I didn't have a clue of what unity was supposed to be in a home because I was always leaving or not leaving. And uh, it, uh, we knew we had to get better. And it was like the first uh, key sobriety date is May the 11th of 76. And Simone had her birthday on May the 25th. And there was something in us that said this was the answer. And we took Simone's birthday cake. He was in the detox. And we took that birthday cake up to the detox. 
and we had her birthday in that detox unit because that's where the answer was. We didn't plan any big neighborhood party with the kids or anything. Daddy's sober. We want Daddy to be a part of this. And so it was our common welfare. I have to go to meetings, and I have to do this for me. But then I have to bring it home because we're all doing this thing, and it pulls the unity in together. This is what we recognize, you know, sponsorship. we got to recognize we work the steps before we work the tradition. I don't think that you can work the traditions until you've lived some amount of time in this program, been involved in service, and done something. So we had to work the steps as an individual. And the first uh, <laughs> tradition, our common welfare comes first, means our family. And therefore, we had to have sponsored direction. She had to have sponsored direction. I had to have sponsored direction that was for common welfare for our family. And like I mentioned before, we had to change sponsors because we had a sponsor that hated me, and I had a sponsor that was, uh, you know, had no family. And we had a family. When I sobered up, I had a wife and a kid. And they told me that, hey, you got a wife and a kid. You've ruined their lives, so you need to, you're responsible for this. You need to take care of that business. They're there, so practice on them. They're handy. Don't make a decision to, uh, you know, you're going to leave or, you know, well, how did I get here? I mean, I met her, I was drunk. I married her, I was drunk. I lived with her for 13 years, drunk most of the time. Had a kid. The night the kid was born, I was drunk. I, You know, and I sober up, and here I am. And I've got this mess. That's what I brought in here. That's my story. I didn't sober up and say, who are you? I don't know you. I want a divorce. I sobered up and they said, you got a family. You've screwed it up. You need to spend the rest of your life fixing that up, taking care of it. So that's my story. I came here with a family. Now, fortunately, the anger in my life and, and the violence, the physical violence went away, but the, it was still in my voice. And I said, i got to go to a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous every day for the rest of my life. What are you going to do? And she said, well, I'm going to Al-Anon. The kid's going to Alateen. And so we started down this path together. And... Uh, our common welfare should come first, and that is our our program. And so we put our program first, our sponsor first. I mean, you could be going crazy, take out the trash, mow the yard, do all this and that and the other. I'd say, i got to go to meeting. Go to meeting. And I didn't like the yard being like that. I used to ride to meetings with my sponsor and al on friends, and they'd take me home, and the grass was like waist high out there. But it was more important for him to be in an AA meeting. So I'd say, okay, I'm going to get out real quick and I'm going to run in the house and don't linger out here because there's Bengal tigers out there in that grass. You know, and I had to say those things for myself to help me release it because the program was more important than a mowed lawn. And, it's, uh, and it was more important in my personal progress. I didn't know how to talk when I came here without... Uh, telling him what to do and cussing him out for what he hadn't done. And in the first tradition, it talks about this is the reason for sponsorship. My personal progress comes first. So when I go to my sponsor and, and I whine and I complain and all those things that we do about the alcoholic, he's sober but he's not doing this, then she got me right back into being grateful for sobriety, and so the unity came. See, one of the things in the first step, it says I'm powerless. So right away, the first half of the first step, I'm powerless. And it's amazing. And each member of Alcoholics Anonymous is but a, but a, a small part of the great whole. So your first tradition is goes along, I'm powerless. I'm just a little old alcoholic. I'm a spoke in the wheel. 
no matter what I think. I'm just I'm just an alcoholic. That's one thing I loved about the international convention. That international convention and sit down there that first Friday night and there were 50, 60,000 people sitting in there. God only knows there were thousands of home groups sitting in there. There was thousands upon thousands of sponsors. There was thousands upon thousands of babies. There were people there that weren't even alcoholic. The whole damn thing. And here's a whole stadium full of people. And there's not one sponsor that controls that whole thing. There's not one group that controls that whole thing. You know? There has to be a God. And that's what I loved about the unity that it brought me back into perspective is there's a power greater than me. My home group isn't the best home group. Who in the hell are we competing with? My sponsor ain't the best sponsor. Who in the hell are we competing with? You know? And what i got to keep in mind is that the unity of the thing is the direction with the people with which I'm going. So my family unity has got to go in the direction of sobriety because I knew this. I couldn't come home to an old idea. I could not stay sober in a place where I drank, in the conditions that I drank under. Because we had all these patterns, I'd come home, start the fight, bam, i go get drunk. So our unity of this tradition <laughs> said that the house, the, you know, the family environment had to change for me to stay sober. Now, the point was, I wasn't saying that's Keith's rule. That was the unity. What are you hearing in your Al-Anon meetings? Aren't they telling you in your Al-Anon meetings that you can't have the same conditions? See? You have to change the condition. And so that's what this first step. Welfare of our fellows. And we sit down and start having family meetings to get the communication. Like I say, we had all everything out of perspective. And we started the communication. And we started our meetings so that we could have each person could share with no rebuttal. No and crosstalk, no rebuttal. And that right away put unity in there. And then that brought the second tradition in. And it says, For our group purpose there is but one ultimate authority, a loving God as he may express himself in our group conscience. Our leaders are but trusted servants. They do not govern. We started by having, and they just happened. We didn't plan them. We started by having uh, meetings on Saturday morning at the breakfast table. And there was no ultimate authority at that breakfast table. Keith had been dethroned. <laughs> 